If you could turn to Matthew 18. We've entitled this, The Kingdom Belongs to the Little Children, and we're going to be dealing with the section tonight on forgiveness. So we've been studying this on Wednesday nights, took a little break there. This will be the last message we'll have. And, you know, we've said that the theme of Matthew 18 is that the kingdom of God, and specifically our church here, is made up of believers that are compared, Jesus compares us to humble children. And so what we have here, we have a community of people, of believers that are brought together. And we are going to have, like any family, relational problems. And so we need to know how to deal with them and how to deal with each other. And that's what we're getting here in Matthew 18. Jesus is instructing us on how we should relate to each other, our attitudes, how we deal with sin with each other, confronting each other. And tonight we're going to talk about forgiving each other. And it's interesting to me that I can call it the capstone of this chapter begins with what? Humility. Because without humility, none of it will work. No one will be able to obey what he says, and everything will just fall apart. So everything he says from the first few verses on, all of it depends on humility within ourselves. Because without true humility, you will not care whether you cause your brother or sister to stumble. You won't even really be putting their needs before your own in any way without humility. And without humility, you will despise somebody that you think is weaker in faith, or not as strong as they should be. And also, you won't seek a strained brother or sister. You just really won't have that kind of concern without humility. We talked last week about needing to confront someone if your brother sins against you. And without humility, that will just be a total disaster. Because it says in Galatians 6.1, if you find somebody overtaken in a fault, you're supposed to deal with them how? He says, in meekness. And consider yourself. In humility that, hey, I'd be just as capable of doing what they did and not thinking yourself above that. And this last section deals with forgiveness. And I would say true forgiveness, when you've been wrong and felt like an injustice has been done to you, to forgive somebody and have a relationship with them, not just to leave them alone, which is what the temptation is. Okay, well, I'm not going to say anything. No, I just don't want to be around them. I'm just going to avoid them. But to have a relationship with somebody a loving relationship, someone that you know has done you wrong in true forgiveness, that takes a lot of humility. That's eating a lot of dirt and humble pie, however you want to say it. But before we get into this, I did want to deal with one, I'm going to call it like a house cleaning question from last week, because somebody asked me, so last week we went through the steps of you go to someone privately, and if they don't receive your admonition then, you bring two or three others, and if they don't receive the two or three others, you go through the church. So you go through those steps. And they were saying, well, what's the difference between that and 1 Corinthians 5? When Paul just, he just puts that guy out. What would be the difference there? Why weren't there steps taken in 1 Corinthians 5? So let me say, I sort of answered it when I taught on 1 Corinthians 5, but let me repeat that that sin that that man was involved in in 1 Corinthians 5 was a deliberate public, repugnant, and unrepentant sin. So it's, it wasn't even that it was just fornication. So it's not like because someone commits fornication, that is an automatic dismissal from a church. It was all of those things I said. It was deliberate, it was public, repugnant, and unrepentant. It had been going on for a while. So to give an example... One of the other sins that's listed, so we'll say not fornication, but drunkenness is one of them that says you don't associate with somebody that is characterized by being a drunk. So a person, say somebody in this church, you happen to go by their house. Well, here they've been imbibing, and nobody knew about it. You happen to walk in, and they're just a little tipsy, and you realize that. But that's not what characterizes their life. And that may not even be the first time that's happened. But let's just say at that time in their life, they're depressed. It doesn't excuse the sin, so we're not saying that at all, right? But this isn't something that's been done in public. This isn't something that's been ongoing in that sense. So what I'm saying is there's not this, because it's this particular sin or that particular sin, it needs to be dealt with in that way. And you confront that person, and they break down crying, and they do repent there. Well, that to me is where Matthew 18 comes in. You've confronted them, they've repented and it's between you and them. Nobody else needs to know about that. You don't need to go out and start broadcasting that 
so-and-so, he's been drinking here lately, or whatever. That's, that's nobody's business. He said, you've gained your brother, and it just needs to stay there. Versus, here's somebody that is seen out in public. He's in the Shelbyville bars, and everybody sees him in the bars in town, and he's listed in the newspaper. He got pulled over for DUI, driving while intoxicated. And when that person's talked to, this is all done in the public, and it's been going on, and everyone does, knows it, and that person's confronted, and he blames everybody but himself. The answer is, well, you'd drink, too, if you had a wife like mine and then kids, my bosses. It's like, you know, you can't blame me for that. So he's unrepentant. That situation is going to fall more into the 1 Corinthians 5 category. So hopefully that will help, help you understand what's going on there. So every situation is not the same. And just because a person's involved in fornication or adultery, to me, that doesn't mean an automatic dismissal. Basically what I just explained. But Jesus assumes... I would say that we are, as a family, just like in your own family, he's saying sins are going to happen. We're going to sin against each other and offend each other. And that's why he says down there in verse 15, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him the fault between him and thee alone. He's kind of assuming that those things are going to happen. But if he just left it at the end of verse 20, where it's just confrontation and that's it, you know, there could be a lot of resentment that's left in the wake of all that confrontation, right? So thanks to Brother Peter, old Brother Peter's always raising questions and making statements that make him look bad. He's always got his foot in his mouth, but it helps us out, right? So we can thank him for that. So because of that question that Peter asked him in verse 21, you know, Jesus is able to give us instructions on how we deal with each other when we've been sinned against and offended. So let's pick it up in Matthew 18, and begin in verse 21. So he's just talked about going through the steps of church discipline or confronting a brother. In verse 21, then came Peter to him and said, Well, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? And Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. He goes on to tell a parable. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshiped him saying, Lord, have patience with me, I'll pay thee all. And then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But that same servant, he went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, You pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll pay thee all. But he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, distressed, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. And then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O oh, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you desired me. Shouldn't you have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you, from your hearts, forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. From your hearts. You know, so there was this guy, his name was Joe, and he'd been dying, was dying. And for years, he had a buddy, his best former best friend named Bill. And these two had been at odds for quite a while. And so old Joe's dying, and he's thinking, I need to get things straightened out. And he sent word for Bill to come. And when Bill came, he told him, he said, I'm telling you, Joe told Bill, he said, I'm, I'm afraid to go into eternity with these bad feelings that we have between us. And it was very hard for him to do. But Joe, very reluctantly, and he told him, he said, I apologize for all the things I've said to you, all the things I've done to you to offend you. And I'm saying, I forgive you for anything you've done to me. You know, and everything seemed good. As Bill turned to leave, he goes to walk out the room and, Joe calls him back in. He goes, but just remember one thing. 
if I get better, this doesn't count. <laughs> so I would say that wasn't exactly forgiveness from the heart, would you? It wasn't forgiveness from the heart. But let me ask you a question. Does the Bible give us that option? Do we have that option to forgive a person that offends us? Because we all know how this works. How many of us professing to be Christians have resentment and bitterness towards other brothers and sisters because of past wrongs? Someone said something behind your back. They started rumors about you, slanders, money that was borrowed and not paid back. You wouldn't help me out when I thought you should, and on and on and on the list could go. We could just keep adding to that list. And you say things like, I'll tell you one thing, if such and such thinks they can treat me that way, and I'm going to talk to them like we talked about earlier and have anything to do with them, they got something else coming. They don't understand the way things work. And that kind of stuff happens more than we would care to admit. But what we want to see tonight is that unforgiveness is one of the most serious sins that you can commit. And the question we're going to look at tonight is if you can have unforgiveness in your heart and still think you have a hope of making it into heaven. Because you don't. We'll get to that answer, but that's what it is. But here we come into this verse in verse 21. You know, and Peter, he's a fisherman and he's a streetwise person. He knows how people get along with each other and how the world works. And he knows that there's people out there. The people he's hung around in his past, his partying buddies, they could push this love thing and this forgiveness thing to the limits. So he's coming to Jesus, and he's really wanting to show him how large of a heart he has. And that's what he's doing here in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? And Jesus said to him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven well, here's what we don't know that you don't get out of this text, but was the case at that time is the rabbi said, you only had to forgive somebody three times for the same offense. And after that, you could do whatever you needed to do to retaliate. So three times is how many you got. So Peter's being generous. He's going more than double that. He said, oh, Lord, more than seven times? Seven times, is that enough? And Jesus answered, so some versions say 77 times, some say 70 times seven and really, it, it doesn't matter because the point is, he's saying it's unlimited. Forgiveness from a Christian side, there is no limit on it. That's that number, whether it's 490 or 70. The point is, you don't have this number of three, and then that's it. <laughs> so he's saying, you don't need to count how many times you've been offended. Building resentment. <laughs> he says, he's telling him, you just need to determine that your heart is right as a Christian and you forgive people, and you leave the rest to God. So it's not like you say, man, that is the fourth time you have pushed me this week, and I've had it. I forgave you three other times. You know, 9.30 on Monday, you got the times in the day, you know, 2.11 on Wednesday and 7.36 on Friday, and here it is Saturday. This is the fourth time you've lied to me this week. That's it. You better get out of my face, or we're going to get into it. There's going to be trouble here. And so he's saying you can't have that kind of attitude where you're keeping track, either by the week or by the month or anyway, by the year. You can't do that. He's saying don't mark on a calendar every time an offense occurs. Don't mark it on the wall if you're in prison. Like the prisoners, you can't be marking a mark on there every time somebody offends you. Mentally, every time someone's done you wrong, you need to personally forgive them and show them love. He goes on to show the reason why, verses 23 and 24. He says it in terms of a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. So what he does is he begins by showing the enormous amount of human sin we have against God, the debt that we could never pay back. He begins by showing that. This king decides to do a little accounting, and he calls all his servants up to him, and one of them, it says, owes him 10,000 talents. That's a tremendous amount of money. So that would be like us saying somebody owed, it'd be an expression of they owed us a zillion dollars. They may as well just said that because that's what he's basically saying because a talent was the largest amount of money. It was actually a weight of gold or silver. But it would be the equivalent of a million-dollar bill. 
And the word for 10,000 is the biggest single word for a number amount in Greek. So it would be like innumerable or countless, it could also be translated as. So he's saying he owed an innumerable amount of million-dollar bills. A zillion dollars is basically what Jesus is saying. It's some number that's astronomical is the point. It's something that can't be paid back. And if you want to take talents and probably what they were worth then times 10,000 and put it into today's money, if this helps you out, and some Bibles do this, it's fine. That'd be $6 billion. That's a lot of money. $6 billion. Is there anyone in here? that can pay off a $6 billion debt in their lifetime with what they're earning? Because if you can, I just like, I don't need 10% of the tithe. Just give me 1% of the tithe because that is $60 million, and I guarantee you I can live real comfortable on $60 million, at least for a few years. So like I said, the idea is this is just, the point is he, Jesus is making in their language, in the Greek language, it's an astronomical amount of money. And it's a picture, what he's trying to do, it's a picture of every person in this room, the debt we owe to God. Because all of us, from the time we do our first cry, we are sinning, aren't we? You're born from the room speaking lies. So I did this little bit of math here. Let's say you sinned a mere 25 times a day as a sinner. And I guarantee you, you sin more than 25 times a day as a sinner. At least I did. But let's just say 25 times a day to just have some kind of number. That would be 9,000 sins a year. And in 25 years, you would have 228,000 sins. And you're saying to yourself, well, 228,000 sins, that doesn't sound like $6 billion worth of sins. Well, wait a minute here. Here's the problem. Think you could work that off? 228,000 sins? The problem is each sin of those 228,000 carries the maximum penalty. And it's not $50,000. It's not $100,000. It's not a million dollars. It's not a billion dollars is not the penalty. Do you know what it is? It's the eternal death penalty for each sin. So, you know, you talk about this in prison, it has a little bit more of an impact because I'm like, that is 228,000 eternal death penalties with no parole, no hope of parole ever, never getting out. And just one is all you need. But he's saying, hey, this is how bad it was. It's like having all of that heaped on top of us, a debt that is impossible for us to pay off, our sin debt, utterly impossible, just like this man to pay this off financially. And so you know, a lot of times we just don't think we really are as bad as we were before we were Christians. When I got saved, I knew I was wicked. But when I first started reading, I started going through the Old Testament as a new Christian. And I started reading the law. I mean, I knew I was saved and, and right with the Lord. But it started coming down on me in a very real way. All the things I had broken in that law and how wicked I really was. And that's what the law's design is to do, to bring people to Christ. But even after I came to Christ... I realized how much forgiveness, way more than I even realized. I knew I was wicked. I didn't realize how wicked. And most people really don't. They don't realize all the lying they've done, all the stealing they've done, the hating, the bitterness, resentment, sexual sins, all the rebellion. Because you can't help yourself before you come to Christ. And it's just building up. A debt that can never be paid just keeps building up. And we sing that song. He paid a debt he did not know. I owed a debt. I could never pay. That is more true than we will ever realize. Maybe we'll realize at one time. So here's the thing. When you get a death penalty, you know, it doesn't matter how rich you are, how much money you have, how many good deeds you can do. It's all over for you. It is. It, you know, that Kennedy boy up years back, I don't know how that ever ended up. He, they found out that it had been 30-some years he'd murdered his neighbor, and they finally all the evidence came out. Well, guess what? It didn't matter what he did from the age of 17 up to, I think he was around 52, 45, whatever it was. It doesn't matter. They weren't sitting there looking at all the good deeds he did, all the old ladies he walked across the street. The fact that he committed murder back then and they had proof, there's nothing he could do in his life. It's the death penalty he was facing. It didn't matter that his name was Kennedy. And that's the seriousness of sin. It's a death penalty none of us can ever get out of. Everyone in this room from the smallest little boy I'm looking at to the oldest person. 
That's the sentence we were all under. That's what we will always deserve. It's a sure sentence. But look at verse 25. But it says there, But for as much as he, this man, had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold. No hope of paying. His Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So this guy doesn't have anything to be paid. And guess what? He's going to lose everything he has. His wife, children, all that. Is that going to come close to paying off that debt? Not even. So he's got 10,000 talents, it's saying, to pay that debt off. You know how much all of that stuff in his family was worth? 12 talents. That's basically not even touching that debt. And yet he's thrown into prison. That's everything he's got. You can't pay a debt off when you're in prison. So basically the $6 billion by the Lord, the king, throwing him in jail and his family and taking everything he has, basically that $6 billion debt is not even touched. Basically left totally untouched. But it's a just punishment, isn't it? He's getting the just punishment. But the man did the only thing he could. The only thing he had to offer was what? What does it say he did? He fell down and worshipped in verse 26. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him saying, Lord, he's begging, have patience with me and I will pay all. Just give me a little bit of time. He's telling him and I will pay thee all. The king knew he couldn't do that. The people that were listening to all this knew it's impossible. He'll never be able to pay that back. And he knows he can't. He knows he doesn't have a chance. But isn't that what we did when the, it should be, when the burden of sin comes down on you, when God brings conviction? Like we heard Sunday, you're just walking along merrily enjoying your sin. But when the Holy Spirit brings down that burden and you see that debt, and you see the fact, I can never be reconciled to God. No amount of my good works comes down on your head. Your wicked life comes to life. Didn't you cry out to the Lord and say, God, I have nothing to pay. I'm so wicked, I can't help myself at all. Please have mercy on me. Isn't that what you did? It should be. It shouldn't be that quiet in here. That's what all of us should have done that are Christians. It's the publican. When he was in the temple with the Pharisee, standing off, he could not so much as lift his eyes unto heaven. So ashamed that publican was. He knew how wicked he was. And he said, he smote on his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's what this man did here. Oh, please be patient with me. I'll pay thee all. Just he's asking for mercy, isn't he? That's what he's pleading for. It's all he can do. Bowing down on his knees in humility. So let me ask you, could you lift your eyes up to heaven when you were a sinner asking God to forgive you? I couldn't. I was ashamed. I really was. So I knew my thoughts, cruel, cruel to people, lustful, hateful, lying thoughts, and I was ashamed. And all I could do for myself, I can speak for myself, was just plead for the mercy of God, just like this man's doing right here. And that's all David could do. When David got caught with Bathsheba, there was no amount of his righteousness, how great of a king he was, the fact that he was a man after God's own heart. None of that stuff could he plead, could he? So, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you, but Psalm 51, here, listen to what he says in these first five verses. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. He's strictly pleading for God's mercy and his loving kindness, pointing to that. Nothing within himself. There's nothing there for him to plead for or with. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, according to that, he says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly, Lord, from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that you may be justified when you speak and clear when you judge. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And that's where he's at. And that's where this man was at. And that's where all of us have been at at one time, haven't we? Strictly the mercy of God to help me from my wicked past. I'm pleading for your loving kindness and your mercy. That's my only hope. So can any of us plead what nice people we were when we came to the Lord? Did you plead that, Jake? Could you? Could you say, hey, my dad's a preacher. That ought to get me something. Is that, did you plead that when you got saved? I don't think, I don't think so. That's why, what I would have pled. But instead we did what? We like, Lord, have patience with me, just like the man. 
I don't deserve anything from you. And everything that's happened to me is just. You've taken my family, my possessions, everything you've taken. I owe you way more than that. And so you haven't taken anything from me that I didn't deserve to have taken. And that's what he's pleading. It's all my fault, and I'll serve you. And so what was the reaction to the king, to this man? Did he tell that servant or that slave, he said, man, where's my money? That's a lot of money, more than you can count. I mean, that king had to be pretty rich, I guess, but that's still a lot of money. To, rich people don't like to let their money go like that, especially not that kind of money. Did he get on that guy? That, Where's my money, you worthless scumbag? Did he talk to him like that? Get out of my sight, you and your family. You're going you're gonna to rot in that debtor's prison. Is that what we read? Look in verse 27. So this guy's pleading and begging, have patience. In verse 27, it says, the Lord of that servant was what? was moved with compassion. He did three things. Three things happened here. The man is moved with compassion. He loosed him. That means he let him go out of that prison, him and his family. Hmm. And did a third thing. He forgave him all that debt. So it says he heard the cry of that servant. He's seeing him bound in the dust. And it did something to that king on the inside. And that word for compassion there is the same word we have when Jesus had compassion that we talked about not that long ago on that leper. It just affected him on the, the inside. And he's like, I know this man deserves justice, and he's wasted what was mine. He wasted it. Doesn't have it. He should have it to pay me back. He's, he's irresponsible. But my heart still wants to help this man and create restoration and a blessing. And she says, hey, take the chains off of him. Take the chains off of his family. Let him loose. And we're going to forget that debt like nothing ever happened. Told that guy the slate is totally clean. Is that not what he did for us? Totally clean slate. Man, I mean, that is, we heard about grace. That is grace. Because we were in a hopeless situation just like that man. And our sin was crushing us. Hell was what awaited us. And God heard our cry, moved with compassion. That's what happens when he's doing that work in you. That's his Holy Spirit. And when, when you make that cry and you're crying, maybe literally, God have mercy on me, a sinner. He's hearing that cry in a real way. It's moving him. And that's how and then he goes on to forgive you. And that's the way God has been through all eternity. Or at least as long as the existence of mankind, a God of compassion. Listen to this, Exodus 3, 7 to 10. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. He says, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good land and large into a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And listen to what he says, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, I will send you unto the Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And sin is like that oppression, and the devil is a hard taskmaster. And when you cry out to God for deliverance, he heard our cry. He heard our cry way before we ever cried out and did something about delivering us from the bondage of the world and sin and the devil. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver us, didn't he? Ha! Huh. Compassion from the Lord. And so if you would, turn over to Titus. I'd like us just to look at one other scripture on this. We should still not be over this. The fact that God looked down on us and had mercy on us when we didn't deserve it. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Then we'll go back to Matthew 18. Verse 2, because Paul says, Speak evil of no man to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing meekness unto all men. Why? Because we ourselves, he includes him, all of us in here were before sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers, lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And then praise God for verse 4. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, and it wasn't by works of righteousness which we have done, but it was purely according to his mercy that he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. 
So we were just as bad as everybody in the world out there, he's saying. But there came a day when it wasn't because of anything we'd done, but just strictly according to his mercy, he cleansed us and forgave us and washed us and made us new, forgave our past. So if we go back to Matthew 18, that's what happened. Verse 27, the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him. No strings attached were there to that forgiveness. Nothing he had to do. This is pure grace, isn't it? Pure grace. That guy did nothing. He couldn't do anything. He, he said, I'll pay you back. Well, you can't do that, friend. Pure grace. I'm just wiping the slate clean. Nothing you did to earn that. You just have to receive it and receive the gift. Because it says the wages of sin is death. But what? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. You can't do anything to earn a gift, or it's no longer a gift. It's an insult to say you're going to do something to earn a gift from somebody. You just have to receive it, don't you? Someone says they want to give you a gift. Well, wait, I've got to do some push-ups before I'm going to take that gift from you. It's like, no, no. Mr. Rudy might have you do some push-ups, but most people wouldn't. And so a lot of times, though, people's pride keeps them from accepting a free gift. They want to do something. But that's insulting to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to see here, God, just because we ask, not because we've done anything, he freely forgives us. And that should be an encouragement to us. There's nothing we have to do to receive his forgiveness in that sense. Just because we ask, accept what the Lord did on Calvary. There's also, with that forgiveness comes a necessity we need to mirror or reflect God's mercy that he's shown us. And so, Verse 28, it says it, but that same servant, after he's been freely forgiven, freely shown grace, look what he does. That same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet, besought him, saying, have patience with me, I'll pay you all. But he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. And his fellow servants saw what was done. They were very distressed. And came and told unto their Lord all that was done. And when his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that freely, just because you asked. And shouldn't you not also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? So that servant that has just had this mercy, great, unbelievable mercy showed to him, decides he is going out on a hunt, and not a deer hunt, and not to show mercy, but what's he going to do? He's going to go out and find somebody that owes him money and demand it. He finds this fellow servant that owes him a hundred pence or denarii, and that's about a hundred days wages or the equivalent of $12,000. So it's not like it's nothing, but that is a debt that that person could pay off. It's not an unpayable debt. You know, when I got married, I've said this before, I inherited about $10,000 of school loans from my wife. And all they asked, the government, they're real nice to me, you know, just pay it off $50 a month. Well, I'm like, you know, I want to get it paid off before I'm 90. So I started tr making triple payments or whatever. It took me about five years. In five years, I had $10,000 paid off. So what I'm, my point is, it's a doable amount. The amount that this other servant owes is a payable amount. It's not totally insignificant. And that's just like when people offend you. It's not like it's usually totally insignificant. But it's nothing compared to what we owe the Lord is the point. So it's trivial though, isn't it? Isn't this thousands of dollars? It's trivial compared to six billion. It's like nothing even worthy to be compared. And that's the point. <laughs> so the guy doesn't just ask his fellow servant for repayment. What does it says he does? He finds him and lays his hands on him and grabs him around the throat and is choking the guy, demanded payment. He's not just saying, hey, we'll see if we can work something out here. Oh, no, no, no. He's choking this guy. And the guy that he does that to, guess what he says? The identical words that that man said to the king. Have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Isn't that something? Exact same words. And the guy's like, no way. That ain't going to happen. If you can't pay it now, you are going to go to jail. I'm sending you to jail till you raise the money. And those other servants are watching that happen, and they know what happened before. They were there too. And this is distressing them. This just isn't right what this guy's doing. 
And they go and tell the king. They give him a detailed report of what happened with this man. Finds this guy, owes him a payable thing, doesn't try to work anything out, grabs him by the throat, is going to choke him, and threatening to throw him in jail. They tell the king everything that happens. And that king calls that man to him. And could you imagine being that guy in his shoes? And you stand before that king knowing what's happened, and you're getting called. And that king looks at him and he says, you are wicked. And I guarantee you he just looked at him. You are wicked. I forgave you that huge debt. You had no chance of paying me off, just not because you deserved it, but simply because you asked me and had compassion on you. And you don't think that you should go and show the same kind of compassion on a debt that is way less than that to your fellow servants? So doesn't it seem clear that what is God saying here? Don't you think that him and we receiving his mercy, it should, there should be a transformation in our hearts? That's what he's telling us, isn't he? Mercy shown us should have us, cause us, compel us to go out and show mercy towards others. Isn't that what the point he's saying right here? I wonder sometimes, people that have constant struggles with vengeance and resentment, I wonder, do they really, have they really experienced the forgiveness of the Lord? Because what about that account in Luke 7 where you got that bad woman in with those Pharisees? Those Pharisees were nothing but critical, judgmental, and they would have been like this guy, choking until you gave them everything you owed them. And Jesus says, if you've been forgiven little, if you, if you haven't experienced it much, guess what you won't do? You won't show much mercy towards anybody because they didn't, because they didn't know God's mercy. Whereas that woman, ah, it, it, she, she'd give anything. Best thing she had, she broke it and put it on the Lord's feet, crying because she received forgiveness, truly received it. And I'm saying if you struggle with that all the time, have a hard heart towards others, and you demand justice all the time and all I wonder, you need to really examine yourself. Have you really experienced God's forgiveness? That you're having such a struggle showing it to someone else. Because that's why I spent all that time. When you realize the huge amount of debt you owed, were owed, how could that not impact you forever? It should. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here. When you see the size and the amount that you owed and where you were headed, and what I did for you, how can you go out on some trivial amount of money and choke somebody over it? And yet we all have done that, haven't we? Every one of us. So this man, he's got two problems here. Number one, he doesn't really appreciate the forgiveness that was given to him in the past. And I think sometimes maybe we lose sight of that ourselves, don't we? He's forgot about that, but he lacks another thing too. He lacks the fear of the king's judgment of the future. He's not afraid of that king and what he might do, or he wouldn't have done that in front of his other servants, would he? And that's one thing we have to understand is forgiveness is not some automatic thing. It's not because we said some prayer 20 years ago, one year ago, five years ago, that we're still going to have that forgiveness, is it? And so the fear of the Lord is we have to see forgiveness ultimately lies with him. And so we have two times when this man is brought before this king. The one time he receives forgiveness, and at the end, it's not a good story for this guy, is it? And I've always liked this verse, Psalm 130, I believe it's verse 4. Listen to this. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. We can't take for granted God's forgiveness, and we need to remember that he is the king. It is the only one that can forgive us our debt. We don't forgive us ourselves. It's not because what we say or what other people say about us. And so he's ultimately the one. If we're not showing forgiveness to others, he says, you'll not get it in the end. With what judgment you meet, I'll judge it. That's what you'd be judged. It doesn't matter what prayer you prayed, that you called me Lord, who your dad is, who your brother, your sister, whatever, how long you've been in this church. None of that matters, does it? If you're not showing forgiveness. And what about us? So what's the wrong? What's the wrong we've suffered compared to what our Lord Jesus Christ has suffered? Because he's our example. So you say, man, my best friend, thought I was my best friend in this church. They just stabbed me in the back with their words, and I will never forgive him. And you think that's so bad? And it may seem that bad at the time you're going through it. But listen, Jesus had one of his friends betray him for 30 pieces of silver. 
You read the Psalms, he said, man, we had sweet communion together. And not only that, but this guy did what? I mean, he's like a real good friend. He betrays him, hands him over, and then comes up and kisses him like they're still friends. And to me, one of the most amazing things that you'll ever read is Jesus, knowing all that, he washed his feet. How hard could that have been? And also, when Judas comes up and kisses him to betray him, he doesn't talk nasty to him. He said, friend, betrayest thou me with a kiss? And he knew where, Jesus, where Judas was headed. Or, man, how about this one? This happens in my house sometimes. My sister keeps borrowing my clothes and never returning them. And I can't get over that. I said, I hate her, but hopefully my girls aren't getting that far away. Well, listen, so someone's borrowing your clothes. I used to have that happen with my brother growing up. I used to really irritate me. Stuff like that. It's the little stuff, isn't it? It's just like an injustice. This isn't right. I paid for these clothes, and they're taking them, and they're making them theirs, right? But guess what? We're back to our Lord. All of his clothes were taken. None of it. He had to hang there naked. So what injustice have we had done to us, big or small, that compares to what he had done to him? And well, you just say, man, the way they talk about me right now is not right. Things people are saying about me behind my back, rumors they're starting slander, and it may be true. And I am going to get my vengeance on them. That's the way people think. But listen to this. When Jesus hung on the cross, it says, the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them, they ridiculed him. He had to take this ridicule from these guys. He could have wiped them out, no problem, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And so he's our example, isn't he? You have words said, rumors started, things said that aren't nice about you, people not treating you good. And what did it say? What was his response? Father, forgive them. We all know that, right? For they know not what they are doing. So the point of this parable is, and what we're seeing here is, this small amount. The worst thing that anyone can do to you is nothing compared to what we have done to the Lord ourselves. And we need to see that. The debt you think someone owes you for the wrong and injustice they've done to you is nothing. Nothing compared to what we owe the Lord. So don't be a hypocrite. Let's all not be hypocrites because... You're all upset because someone's lied about you, and we're all going to sit here and act like we have never lied about someone else, or someone stole your hairbrush, and you're, not, you're going to forget about all the things you've taken that weren't yours, or someone talked about behind your back, and who is going to raise their hand and say they've never done that since they've been a Christian, talk behind somebody's back? Is anyone going to say they're not guilty? Maybe, but I don't see any hands going up. So here's what we need to remember is people in and out of the church, as long as you're living and breathing, offenses are going to come, aren't they? They are going to come. That's just part of life. And that's why Paul went on, he wrote in Ephesians 4 this, he wrote this, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed under the day of redemption. And he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and loud quarreling and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That's where you want to get back at somebody for something they've done. And he says, and be ye kind one to another. Put all the rest of that stuff away from you, but be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. So when we see what God has done for us, he's saying we should be doing the same to our brothers and sisters in here because we've all been offended by each other. All of us have. People that are our friends, that live in our households, our spouses, they offend us in ways that a lot of times they don't even mean to. But they do it nonetheless. Happens all the time. And if we're going to hold resentment and grudges over things like that, so some things we need to talk to some people about, and some things we need to just cover it over, don't we, and move on with life. Because it will eat you up. It will. And it's going to ruin other people's lives in here and in your family. It'll ruin you. And so Hebrews says this, follow peace with all men and holiness. So peace and holiness says, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently 
lest any man fall of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. So we have, need to learn to forgive, and I'd say forget, but I'd say not forget like you're going to avoid somebody, forget about them. But we need to forgive and show love is what we need to do. Or we'll end up like this man. I read about this man, Heinrich Heine. What a name. Sounds like a bad beer, really. But he's, he was a German poet that actually they said he could just write beautiful poetry. I've never read any of it. I don't like poetry. But that's what they said. But they said he had a vengeful spirit that ruined his life. And anybody that disagreed with him, they said he would write the most bitter, hateful things about him. And this is one thing he wrote. Listen to this. <laughs> he says, my nature is the most peaceful in the world. All I ask is a simple cottage, a decent bed, good food, and some flowers in front of my window. Sounds like a nice guy, doesn't he, old Heinrich? And he says he also, though, he wants a few trees lining out his front door, going out his front door. He says, then if God wanted to make me wholly happy, he would let me enjoy the spectacle of six or seven of my enemies dangling from those trees. I would forgive them for all the wrong they have done me. Forgive them from the bottom of my heart, for we must forgive our enemies, but not until they were hanged. I got a little bit of a misapplication of what we're looking at tonight. We need to ask ourselves, though, because, I mean, the temptation is when someone does you wrong that you just, something bad happens to them, you're a little bit happy about it, right? Okay, I'll say it for you. It's a temptation, okay? Because Proverbs 24, 17 says this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him. So I don't think Heinrich had a good end, according to what we're reading. Because he wasn't a very forgiving person at all. Didn't know the Lord, obviously. Uh, compare that to this story. This is a true story, a more recent person. And this boy's name was Chris Carrier. And he was let out for school on Christmas, for Christmas break. He was let, it was December 20th. 1974 was the year that this happened, December 20th. And his school bus dropped him off on the corner. And he's walking on his way home. And he's just about halfway down the block to his house. And this guy named Chuck comes up to him gets out of this van and meets him, and he says he was friends of Chris's father, the boy. He says, I'm friends with your dad. He says, in fact, you look a lot like your dad. And the kid's like, oh, really? And he goes, yeah. He goes, well, let me ask you, would you like to come and help me? I'm getting a party ready for your dad. Would you like to come help me? And Chris's like, oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. So I'm going to get together with your dad and have a party. So he says, well, jump in, and he takes him to this motorhome, rides in this motorhome, and then they start going, they're driving around to somewhere. Chris is like, man, I have no idea where this guy's taking me now. And he starts to get nervous, but he's like, there's nothing I can do about it now. I'm stuck in this vehicle with this guy in this motorhome. So finally, this guy, Chuck, he pulls this motorhome over, and they're out in the middle of nowhere. And without an explanation, he goes to the back of that motorhome and comes back. And Chris is up front, and he pins the boy to the floor and begins stabbing him and burning him with a cigarette. And Chris tried to hold him off, but he's just a 10-year-old boy and didn't have a chance against this grown man. This boy was already saved at the age of 10. And this man is destroying this boy. And this boy prays this. He says, Father, forgive him because he doesn't know what he's doing. A 10-year-old boy doing that. This is a true story. And so this guy finally starts torturing this little kid. And he takes him out to the Everglades, in the Florida Everglades. And he takes a gun and shoots the boy in the head and leaves him there, left him to die under some bushes. And so the people all in South Florida, they're looking for this boy. His parents offer a $10,000 reward to anybody that can give any information for his safe return. So that boy laid unconscious for six days under that bush. So he woke up the day after Christmas. He regained consciousness. And a hunter found him, a guy out hunting, found him sitting on a rock. He had two black eyes and a bloody shirt. Takes him to the police, and he calls his dad up. And his dad, they basically had given up on him. They, they didn't know what had happened. And they had trouble even believing it was him when he called him on the phone. They asked him a few questions, what's the dog's name and all that other. And that bullet that went into his head, it went behind his eyes and came out his right temple. And miraculously, he had no brain damage at all. But he lost vision in his left eye. 
So the guy that did this to him, his name was David McAllister. And he had worked for this boy's uncle. And the uncle had fired him for being drunk. And the guy is like, I'm going to get vengeance on this family. And that's what he did, this Carrier family. Chris Carrier was the boy's name. He was never charged because they could find no evidence. And Chris couldn't remember what happened. He woke up on that rock thinking his dad was going to get him for Christmas is all he remembered. Couldn't remember anything about the ki kidnapping. But he survived. And he was a Christian. And, and he had a good heart towards that man that did that to him from the day it happened while he was doing it. And people asked Chris, they said, what would you do if you had a chance to speak to that man personally? And he kept telling him, he said, I would jump at the chance to talk to that man. And guess what? He got that chance. Twenty years later, after he was kidnapped, he gets a call from one of the police officers that had his case, who worked on his investigation. And he says, there's a man named David McAllister It's dying in a nursing home. He is admitted to being the one that abducted you 20 years ago. And he's told us everything that happened. Because they didn't know, because that Chris didn't remember. And he asked Chris, he said, would you like to meet with this man, McAllister? And Chris went. And here's this guy, they said the nursing home, it reeked. It was not a nice nursing home. It reeked. And he goes in there, and here's this guy dying. He's got glaucoma. He's an old man by now. And so he confesses this crime to Chris, and here's what Chris did. He held the man's hand and told him he had forgiven him. And he told the man, McAllister, he says, I want you to have a good night's rest tonight. And McAllister responded, I will now. And that wasn't the end of it, though, as far as his relationship with this McAllister guy. That wasn't the end of it. Reconciliation followed because he continued to go in there and visit that man in the nursing home. And he shared the gospel with him. This boy was blind and had only one eye from the time he was 10 years old till the time he's 30. Had to live with that. But he didn't live with resentment. Visited him in that nursing home. Even took his young daughters in there to meet him. To meet this man that had tortured him like that. Shared the gospel. Brought this man to the Lord. Mr. McAllister came to the Lord. And listen to this. So the news people find out about this, obviously. CNN goes in there and they interview this McAllister guy. And he says, I'm going to tell you, Chris Carrier is the best friend I've ever had. Isn't that something? So he met with that man. Here's what forgiveness will do. He held his hand, told him he'd forgiven him. And it didn't just stop there with that pardon. He, he developed a relationship. He loved him. And that's what forgiveness, true forgiveness, will do. And it says one time he visited McAllister five times in six days. And I would ask you, in light of that, what's your problem? What's our problem tonight that we're having trouble forgiving somebody over? That that boy could do that at 10 years old. So remember, at the beginning of the message, I said, is forgiveness optional? Chris didn't think so. But that poet thought it was. And he's going to live to regret it, or he lived to regret it. Because look down in verses 32. Let's read verses 32 to 35. Then his Lord, after he called him, said unto him, O you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you desired me. Should not you also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. In other words, he's talking about hell because there is no paying all that was due unto him. We've already talked about that. Verse 35, and generally Jesus doesn't give the point to his parables, but he does here. He says, so likewise, in other words, it'll be the same way, shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. So do we think forgiveness is optional no matter how hard it is, no matter what somebody has done to us? As a man wrote, forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. So here's what we're saying. If God, if you've experienced his great mercy and pardon for the great debt you owe, it should change our hearts. There should be a transformation. And that's the way it is with that Chris Carrier. I mean, I've read accounts of people overseas that they get stopped and they get beaten, tortured, shot, and they're praying for these people. And I thought, how can they do that? 
I thought that wouldn't necessarily be my first thought. I don't know that I would have had what Chris Carrier, I mean, but that should be our first thought, shouldn't it? Really? I just think from a 10-year-old, that's just amazing to me. And we should have a desire to show it to others. In 1 John, he says this. He says, we know that we have passed from death unto life. How? Because we love the brethren. That's how you can know you pass from death to life. He that loves not his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And hereby we perceive the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us, we ought, we have an ought now. Because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's that ought of forgiveness we have because of what the Lord's done for us, if we're trusting that. Proverbs 10 says this, hatred will stir up strife, but love covers all sins. Hatred stirs up strife, strife, but love covers all sins. So let me say, are you someone, am I someone that stirs up strife because we, someone's offended us? Is that how we are? Or are we the other way, where it says love covers all sins, forgives all wrongs that are done, and seeks peace? But like we said, verse 35, if we won't show mercy and forgive others, we will not receive that from the Lord. That's what it says. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. And that's not just outwardly. He's saying from the heart. That means what? You cannot sit around and dwell on what someone has done to you. You've got to just be done with it as far as dwelling on it. Because we know what it says in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? As we forgive. So at the end of that prayer in Matthew 6, Jesus says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But... If you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I mean, that's pretty black and white, isn't it? But we need to be reminded of that. That's how serious it is. And Jesus said, we like Mark eleven twenty four, but we need to remember Mark eleven twenty five. 25. He says, if you stand praying and you've got aught against anybody, you need to forgive him, or basically your faith is going to get you nowhere. A healing you're believing for, a financial situation, whatever it is. Whatever problem you're having, a wayward child, and you've got unforgiveness towards somebody, your face going to go absolutely nowhere until you deal with that. All of us, we have to deal with unforgiveness in our hearts, or our prayers aren't getting anywhere. We can fast and pray till the cows come home. <laughs> so it's a serious warning he's given us here at the end, isn't he? And he's pointing back to saying, hey, because of what mercy that was shown you, you have an obligation now to show mercy, and you should fear God because of that. So it's a warning. So I think in here we have a warning. And the fear of God, there's nothing wrong with that, right? If we don't forgive, we have to fear that we may end up in hell. But he also says, just because you ask, no, I will freely forgive you. There's nothing you have to do to earn my forgiveness. So let's look in our hearts, all of us tonight, to see if we're harboring any resentment or unforgiveness. And it just may be, you know, some of us need to talk to a friend, a relative, a brother, sister in here, a mate, a spouse. And it may be the hardest thing you'll ever have to do in your life. I really think that takes more humility than anything else we've talked about. It really does. But Jesus didn't say that it would be easy, the Christian life, did he? He didn't say it would be easy. But our eternal life does hang in the balance, doesn't it, on how we deal with forgiveness. Because forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known, as we said. As hard as it may be for us to do, Guess what he'll give us to do it? He will. And we'll need it. Believe me, we will need it in these days coming because we haven't experienced what the rest of the world has experienced as far as persecution and having to pray for our enemies. We just haven't had to do that, and we will. And the only way we're going to be able to do that and to continue to walk with the Lord and not be the ones... You know, it talks about their love grows cold. It's like blowing on your soup is what the picture is. It just is a gradual thing. You know, you got that hot thing of soup and you can't eat it yet. You just blow on it and gradually it gets cool enough. And that's what happens with people's love. It doesn't just overnight disappear. 
But gradually, because of the evil increasing and people that aren't keeping their walk with the Lord and aren't praying for the grace to forgive others, gradually your love grows cold and you, you lose it. You lose your relationship with the Lord, you lose it all. And then you're acting just like the world reacts to people within the church and people without the church, in traffic, out of traffic. So let's just look to the Lord for his grace to help us to live what we see here. Amen? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this chapter here in Matthew that you've graciously shown us that as humble little children in this church that we can come together and, and we will have problems, but you've shown us how to deal with them, Lord, and you've also shown the great forgiveness that you've given us, and we're just eternally thankful for that, Lord, and we will be eternally thankful, and we just ask, Lord, that you'll just remind us and put us before us that we are obligated to go and return and show that to our brothers and sisters, especially our brothers and sisters in here, to forgive them just as you have forgiven us. And also people out in the world that do us wrong, Lord, that that is how we can demonstrate and be a light to them and a witness of the love of Jesus Christ that prayed for this wicked world on that cross, that treated him spitefully and mocked him. And we just ask you, Lord, that you will hear for us as a church, give us the grace and the power of your spirit to help us to live that way, to live according to your word, to bring glory to you for what you've done for us. And we just thank you that you'll do that for all of us, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.